Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Now, here is an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Gemini Dragon. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
And that was Gemini Dragon from her brand new release. And we got Gemini on the line right now. Hey, Gemini, how are you today? I am doing excellent. I'm doing excellent. Good. Now, uh, this is the first time you've been on our show. And we always like to start off by giving our fans an opportunity to get to know who you are, not only as an artist, but as a person. And the best way to do that is to look at your journey, how you got to where you are today. So give us the story of Gemini Dragon. Well, um, it's not really anything um, special that happened here, you know. Um, I think it's kind of generic. You know, I grew up um, black Catholic, singing hymns in church, youth choir, that kind of thing. Um, I left singing along for many, many years and went to college and didn't didn't pick it up again until college, Um, trying to do the girl group thing because Destiny's Child was the, the big thing then. Um, when I was in college, so, you know, I did that for a little while. Um, I, from there, picked up the guitar and tried to, um, not try to, I did like a a singer-songwriter thing as best as I could, because I didn't really know or didn't have any information or any um, um, bridges to get information in regards to what the actual music industry is and required for you to make the transition from just singing at a spot to actually do it professionally. But, uh, you know, I wrote my songs and I had my guitar and I would go to wherever I could go to to sing and display myself and my music. Um, um, I did that for a few years and then I got married. <laughs> and that came to a complete halt. Um, you know, until that was almost to an end and that's when I began to get into music again. I, I joined a cover band and started singing again. Um, eventually, um, Christian, um, contacted me about doing some background vocals on some of his music because he is he's been in the industry for a long, long, long time and been successful at it. So that's how this current um, this current um, period in my life began. Okay, now you know every artist has that. I guess, crossroad moment where you had several career paths laid out in front of you and you chose music as a way to to go. What was that that, that moment for you where you knew music was something you wanted to pursue? Well, I I would say not that I knew it was something I wanted to pursue. It was more that it was something that I I could possibly do. Because I grew up you know, surrounded by just a plethora of powerhouse vocalists. And I never felt that I was one of those people. So it never occurred to me that that was something that I could do professionally because I didn't sound like those women. You know, I don't, I don't have a, I'm a, an alto. Um, I, I can't sing soprano notes, but my, my, my voice is, it's heaviest or it's, um, you know, it's fullest in the lower ranges of, of the scale. So it wasn't until college when someone else said, hey, do you want to, I think you sound, you know, da-da-da-da, would you like to do this with me and write these songs with me and try and get a group together? It wasn't until then that, that a light clicked on that this was something I could possibly do. And from that moment on, I really never, I ne- really never let it go in my spirit. I stopped doing it while I was married, but I was miserable not being able to to pursue music while I was married. Um, it's just always something that's been in me. I always loved music. There was always music playing in the house. That stereotypical kind of little line there, but it's true. There was always music playing, either for myself or my parents, grandparents. Somebody was always singing something. My grandfather sang in the church and played guitar. My uncles played the organ, that kind of stuff, you know? So it was just that, that want to sing was always there. But the thought that I can do it professionally didn't come until um, I was in college. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about the new release. When you were putting this together, what was the uh, inspiration that drove it into existence? Well, um, let's see. The inspiration, musically, um, were artists like Mavis Staples. Um, you know, we, we wanted some soul music on the album. 
And of course, I've always, my ear has always kind of been tuned to blues and like blues rock songs. So there's, there's Led Zeppelin and, you know, those kind of folks, Jimmy Hendrix, those kind of folks are always in my ear. Anyway, so that's there as well. Um, but we knew we wanted that to be down. We wanted some soul music and we wanted to lean more toward the rock side of things as opposed to the blues side of things. Just to switch it up and to, you know, the show that we are um, developing in the writing and developing in um, the albums that we are producing or that, that we're releasing. Okay. Now, let's talk about your process um, as a writer itself. Every songwriter has their way of tapping into the muse, their way of, of getting things going. When you sit down to that blank page, what is your process that helps you tap into your muse? Well, and let me know if I'm talking too fast. I'm, I'm going to say that because I am from the South, Louisiana. I, I, I naturally talk really fast. I'm trying to slow it down for you. That's <laughs> for okay. Just let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm from New York, you know, so you can talk as fast as you want. I can keep right up. All right. <laughs> All right. So so writing for me, it varies. You know, there, there were times in my life where I, just to kind of hone my writing skills, I would just pick a word and then write a song off that word with nothing else to generate what the song was going to be about. Um, lately, you know, I'm, I'm working with somebody, like I said, who has been in the business for a long time. So it's more structured. So um, depending on the song, I may it may be um, autobiographical. Or I may use the, the emotions from whatever happened to me to insert that into something I'm writing that's not autobiographical, just so that I can tap into it better when it, it comes time to, to sing it. So it kind of varies. A lot of times, um, for some of the songs, Christian will have already laid down the arrangement of the music and may have some ideas already written down as far as a verse or a, a hook. And I just play off of that, you know, to make sure that the story that's been being told is, is um, flowing, um, is consistently flowing, you know, and that it makes sense once it's heard or once it's read. It varies, you know. Okay. Now, you know, a lot of songwriters uh, have embraced the technology today as tools in their toolkit, whether it's a cell phone or mm-hmm. home recording studio or even some of the online tools like Master Writer and um, online thesaurus and, and rhyming dictionary. What are some of the tools you have found to be kind of indispensable to you as a writer? As a writer, um as a writer, it's still mostly either um, paper and pencil or like if you're in a spot where you don't have access to it, you'll use like your worry app or whatnot, something similar on your phone or the recorder on your phone. But as far as the writing process goes, that's about it. You know, something to jot down your idea, something to record the idea, you know. Okay. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, when is a song done? Uh, A lot of songwriters struggle with that moment where they have to put the pen down and move the song into its next phase, into production. Uh, You know, and allow the musicians and the producer to kind of put their fingerprints on it. What do you do? What is your quantifier that helps you determine when a song is ready to move to that next phase? I actually, um, I've, I've not had that problem. I've not had that problem, if I'm, I'm being honest. And only, and not only because, probably, definitely because of who I'm working with. You know, so everything is structured. So we know what we want the album to sound like, you know. Um, and when you're writing the song, usually the music has already been done. Like the music usually comes first. And the sound that we're going for is first. And then we're writing in the words to to help fill out what the music is already laid out. So I've never had an issue where I'm, I'm having to struggle to um, figure out when to stop writing. Um, now I will say, if I were to go back into the past, prior to um, this current season in life, 
that may have been a problem unknowingly, you know, because then I was just writing words. And the music that would accompany the words was a for you know, was not really a thought at that time. But um but right now this is really a it's a business. You know, I love singing and I love creating and I love writing, but it's also a business. So we have things kinda, you know, set up to what it should be and um when it needs to be done and when it needs to be released and that kind of thing so that the engine runs smoothly. And so that we have some, some success because ultimately we want to try and make some money and in order to do that you gotta get the music out so people can see it and hear it and feel it. Okay. Now um writing a song is kind of half the battle. The other half yeah. is creating its sound, its groove, its beat. Uh, and that's all done in the studio environment. And every artist has their way of capturing the sound that they want. Some like to do it live from the floor and get the energy of the band. Others like to have more control and track it. What is your process when you get into the studio that helps you get the sound you're looking for? I um, I pretty much try to remember or um, converse with Christian on what the feeling is supposed to be. Like what emotion I'm supposed to be sending to the person that's going to be hearing this song. I tap into that and then I think through that. Excuse me. To make sure, you know, I'm um, coloring things the way they should be, you know, because you don't want to sing everything super loud. Everything shouldn't be soft and dainty. You know, you, you have to push things up to uh, to make sure you're telling the story properly, and, and that's what I do. Okay. Um, now, when I'm in the studio, of course, I have to listen to the producer as well because the producer is going to definitely have ideas on what things are supposed to sound like and that kind of thing. But as far as me singing it. I, I always go for the emotion that I'm trying to portray. Okay. Now, uh, let's talk about the lineup on this. Who's playing? All right. That's an easy question. I have it ready. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm horrible with remembering names, no matter how often I use them. So, of course, myself, I'm doing vocals. Um, we didn't have any background vocals. This, but this record, I'm doing the, the lead and the background on the album. Um, of course, Christian is on guitar. Um, we have a gentleman by the name of Douglas Renato Jr. on bass. Uh, a gentleman named Eric Sasser on drums. Um, we also gave my daughter a little um, shout out on one of the songs. She's playing vibraphone on, um, I believe it is, what song is that? That is The Last Train Thibodeau. She's playing vibraphone on that song. And then we also had some um, guest appearances from two guys in Portland, Oregon, um, Chad Roop and uh, T.J. Wong, uh, made some guest appearances on um, "Doing Up to No Good." Okay. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about the industry itself. I mean, we're all deep in this conversation, especially when it comes to streaming. Um, the and, and the elephant in the room here is that the consumer has embraced streaming as a way to consume music. And you got to give them, you know, you got to give it to them. I mean, it's convenient. You don't have to store it anywhere. Um, and, you know, you have access for $10, $15 a month to almost everything that's been recorded in the last 125 years. So, yeah. you know, it's in fact, uh, Chart Metrics actually uh, said that uh, there is on Spotify alone, there is over 872 years of music stored with 60,000 songs a week being uploaded to Spotify. Wow. And, you know, if you wow. think about it, if you started listening the day that Leonardo da Vinci finished the Mona Lisa, you still would not be done listening to the music that was uploaded to Spotify as of January 1st until the year 2402. So that is a staggering amount of 
content that's up there uh, for the consumer. For the artist, on the other hand, we do have access to this huge potential market, but mm-hmm. recorded music has lost the status of product. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to buy it anymore. It's way too convenient just to look up an artist on Spotify, listen to their catalog, add the songs you like to your playlist, and, you know, for that small nominal fee. And, you know, I yeah. grew up in an era where I bought my music. I bought it actually several times. I I bought it on vinyl, 8-track, cassette, CD, downloads. You know, and for mm-hmm. me, even even I can see the benefit of, of streaming. But how yeah, has yeah. this shift by the consumer affected, affected you as an artist so far? Well, I, I kind of feel like I, I missed the golden age of being able to make a living, um, you know. Because like you said, it, it, it's a double-edged sword. You have access to all all this great music, you know, easy access to it, which is a, a great thing, an awesome thing. But um, us folks who are making the music, we are not seeing the all rightful, you know, monetary benefits from it um, the way that you would if, when people were only downloading music or only buying CDs and albums and all that. It's kind of it's kind of saddening. But really, you really can only make money nowadays touring. Right. Like you you make the album, and the album is only like a, a calling card to allow you to be able to book tours or to book shows. You're not really making any money at all from the actual sale of the album, unless you have a lot of fans still going to your band camp page or or buying the album from you directly at shows that kind of thing. You know, it's not that streaming is not really a a source of income at all. It's more it's like a commercial. Like I, I say it's social media for me, um, I can use it like a commercial. You know, you, you display um what you want to display to to get people to better know who you are or want to come to a show, that kind of thing. And streaming is pretty much the same thing. It's just a commercial. Unfortunately. Yeah, you know, and, and and I agree. I mean, I mean, if you really look at it, the the revenue that we get from streaming is really not sustainable for the industry uh, as a business mm-hmm. model. Uh, we can't no. continue to ask artists to con- you know to create content that costs them you know thousands of dollars to create and not even mm-hmm. give them the opportunity to break even. You know, and no. now with Spotify. Um, instituting this new policy as of January 1st where they're, where they're not going to pay any artist that has less than a thousand streams anything. Mm-hmm. They're just out of, yeah. the, out of the equation. And if you go back to chart metrics and you look at what they came up with as far as you know their uh, evaluation of the music industry, according to them, 81% of all music on Spotify has less than a thousand streams. So what you're what they're actually saying is we're not gonna pay for eighty one percent of our content. And you know, you may think, okay, thousand streams, that's what, couple bucks. But you do that over eighty one percent of the content and you know, remember there's eight hundred and seventy two years mm-hmm. of music yeah. on there. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, their excuse is, is that, oh, we're just trying to weed out the bad actors, you know, the you know, the non-professionals that are putting music up on, on the platform. But that doesn't really hold water because they're not paying a percentage of revenue. They're paying a flat stream fee. So that doesn't wash. You know, they're keeping this money, that revenue. To me, you know, if you're going to do that, then you need to take that money and do something constructive with it that's going to help the independent artist and help um, incubate or or support artists on the way up. You know, create a fund like like the Factor program over in, in Canada where 
artists can apply for grants and they can you know go into the studio or a grant to go on tour and subsidize it so they can you know afford to play venues that don't don't have the money right now especially after covid you know and and start supporting this micro economy that touring artists actually support um or you know what don't pay artists until they get to that thousand stream mark, but don't keep the money. Keep it in escrow, just like uh, Google does with AdSense. You know, if if you have an AdSense account, you don't get paid until you reach the hundred dollar mark. But that accumulates. It's still there waiting for you. So you know what they're doing is is out and out theft of intellectual property. There's no way around it. It's it's just outright theft. You know what I mean? I do, I do. You, you really. Um, I, I wasn't aware of the, the statistics of everything, but you really laid that out too well. It, it gives me a lot to, to go back and think about. Really. Well, you know, we as independent artists, we have to we have to educate ourselves. We have yeah. to yeah, yeah. not allow ourselves to be um how can I best way to say it? Bullshitted. Okay? Hmm. Uh, you're from Louisiana, you know that term. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what we need to do is educate ourselves and say, "Hey, this is a line of crap." So we need to do something to change that. Now, there's a few things we can possibly do. I mean, you know, um, we can, you know, maybe do lobbying and, and, and try to change it through legislation. Of course, that is a slow moving train. If if nothing else, it is, if you know, derailed, if not slow moving. Uh, or we can start looking, where is this all going to into the future? And start moving not only our content, but our fans to the next thing. Because if you look at the digital revolution mm-hmm. and you look at the timeline, every time we get a company that we believe is going to dominate the music industry forever, something comes along and replaces it. Uh, mm-hmm. LimeWire was replaced by Napster. Napster. Yeah was replaced by iTunes and the iPod, you know, and along comes Spotify and replaced iTunes. And now all the iPods are sitting in the kitchen junk drawer, just collecting dust. So Mm -hmm. it only stands the reason that there will be something coming down the pike that will replace Spotify. Uh, And I'm watching some of these technologies, one of which are these streaming services like Audius, um, uh, OME.audio, which is Open Music Exchange, uh, that have created a streaming platform that is based on the same technology that cryptocurrency uses uh, called the blockchain. And what the big advantage of the blockchain is, is that it is a decentralized system. In other words, it is owned by the fans and by the artists who put up their content. No corporation or person can own these services. It is impossible to own them because they're owned by the users. You know what I mean? So it's more of a direct relationship between artists and fans. You know, what do you think of that as a potential for the future? Honestly, I'd have to look into it more to be able to really make an intelligent statement. I I had never heard of that before, if I'm being honest. Okay. Um, But it sounds from what you are explaining to me. Um, in our, our brief conversation about it, it sounds like it has potential to to be a help rather than to be a nuisance to us, you know. Right, right. Well, that does, that does sound promising. Well, like audius.co, you can go on your phone right now and you can get an audius player 
just like Spotify. You can create playlists. You can do everything you can on Spotify, except the resolution is better. You can go up to FLAC files on, on Audius. Also, it's got the backing of like Katy Perry and Jason Derulo and Nas and Pusha T and Dead Mouse, you know, all the EDM artists. And so there is backing to this new platform. And the best part is, is because it's decentralized, because it has eliminated most of the middlemen in the music industry, they can pay up to 80% of the incoming revenue directly back to the artist. So Mm -hmm. that is a completely different um, business model for streaming than what we're used to right now. Do you think that that could be something that you could, you know, stand behind? I think if it were to um, come into fruition, yes, I, I think so. I do believe so. It, as far as from what you're explaining to me now, it seems that that would be a, a more positive way to go as, instead of just uploading to what we have available to us now, the Spotify and the Apple Music and that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, um, one of the other sites I've been I've been keeping an eye on too is this site called Royal.io. Now, what they let you do is create these shares. Let's put it that way: that you can sell to your fan base that represent a small portion of either your streaming royalties or your publishing royalties, and. Um, one of the rap artists I've been watching, Nas, he did this on his last release, and he sold uh, on two songs one half of the streaming royalties of these two songs to his fan base. And uh, he was able to generate almost $600,000 in upfront income. In addition... Hmm. He now had over 3,000 fans that had an economic interest in making sure his music is streamed because they get paid. On top of that, these shares are bought and sold on an open market, just like stocks are on the stock exchange. And Nas will get a commission on the resale of these shares in perpetuity, forever. So it's another hmm. revenue stream on top of the initial sale. So it's huh. it kind of takes the place of a record company, the traditional yeah. record company. Because, yeah. I mean, you know, what is a record contract? It's basically a bad loan with bad terms. <laughs> you know? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not lying. You're not lying. So that that definitely is where I'm seeing the industry heading. And I I could see that, you know, that direct fan-to-artist relationship is going to be more important as we move forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. um, Well, um, I'm beginning to know what you mean. Because I hadn't heard of either of these um, entities prior to this conversation. But I'm I'm definitely going to look into it. Okay. Very, very interesting. Very interesting and promising, really. Because I was, um, you know, not that I was feeling, uh, you know, like it's the end of the world or whatnot, but, you know, I know that I, I did miss the gravy train starting to be needed now as opposed to several years ago, you know, as far as being able to make an income, uh, to make a living from creating music. Right. But that, that does sound promising, you know. Well, that really does sound promising. I actually wrote an article called The Truth About Spotify. It's on makingascene.org. If you get a chance, go up and take a look. I list a lot of these companies that are doing this, just the sampling. And, you know, of I think I have 15 or 18 different uh, companies listed that are doing things now based on this blockchain technology that uh, is really interesting And as we move forward, you know? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, 
very important. One of the things I think is going to get even Mm -hmm. more important as we move into the future, because of this direct artist-fan relationship that we all, um, that I see happening as we go into the future of the music industry, uh, is this whole world of content creation and social media marketing. When, When the pandemic hit, we all kind of shut down and we went in our homes we weren't allowed to tour and we started to think well what are we going to do we have to stay connected to our fans we have to create some sort of revenue so we started live streaming and we you know when the weeks turned into months we got a little better at it better equipment we said okay you know we can do a better job of this and as the months turned into years that content kind of morphed into more of a reality show kind of thing where we were showing our fans not only who we were as artists but who we were as people our everyday lives our our you know puppies babies and kittens and you know all of that you know that happens in our lives as a natural progression of our day and people our fan base started to really gravitate to that they and and if you think about it we've been inundated with reality shows for 25 Mm -hmm. years you know so Mm -hmm. we're very acclimated to that kind of raw content and it has you know, kind of given rise to this funnel marketing thing where you, you know, if you're a musician, you're not one dimension. You have other interests. You have other hobbies. You have other things that make up who you are as a person. So if you bring that out into your social media by creating content that shows who you are, uh, to give you an example, uh, Mindy Abar, um, sax playing um, uh, vocalist, uh, songwriter, also has a line of wine. She does cooking. She does a cooking thing on the internet with her husband. Um, and so she brings in people who like cooking and people who like wines and people who like music and she gets them into the top of her funnel and they get distilled down as they discover more about her to her music and they get to Mm. the point where they get to that bottom of the funnel where you get the fans that will financially support an artist and if you really think about it what does it really take to support an artist financially? If you can get 1,000 fans to spend $100 a year on you as an artist, that's 100 mm-hmm. grand a year. Mm-hmm. That's doable in a uh, through social media where you have access to billions of people. The percentage is in your favor. If you can get enough people into the top of your funnel, you can get that 1,000 distilled down to the bottom of the funnel to support you economically. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you're doing with social media and content that's helping you create your funnel marketing to create your brand well we are still working the kinks on that we um of course like i said we use social media as pretty much um free commercial space you know in regards to publicizing what we're doing with the music shows that are coming up um um any type of um content that we create we have a like a little some little short snippets of things that we do on fridays um forever fan fridays so we have that going where we talk about um a person that we really just for 30 seconds or less than 30 seconds really a person that we really admire uh musician and whatnot um we've we've um delved into briefly doing some um 18 to 20 minute um, videos on um, women in the blues, that kind of thing. And then we're probably going to start doing that again. Um, 
but we we are working at it. We're trying to actually figure out what we can do to kind of get that kind of thing going. Because, like you said, that that is an easy way to get some extra revenue coming in. Um, it is a for me. It's a a balancing act because I'm a I'm not a spring chicken, you know. So the idea of having all of my business is just out and open for everybody to be able to see and hear about is not exactly um, what's the word. It's not exactly something I, w- I would want to do, if mm-hmm. I'm being honest. You know, okay. I, I'm a mother. I have children too, whose um, privacy I want to protect. You know, so we're, we are still working it out. We're, we're still working out how best to do that, to where it will work and function within my life as a musician and a mother. And it would be something that people would want to participate in with me, you know, on this journey that we're doing. Okay. Well, you know, I I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with me. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys out there, you know, you may just want to turn this up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight.
independent artist or a fan that loves them making a scene.org is the place for you for the music fan we bring you in-depth interviews and cd reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music for the independent artist we bring you articles on music business recording techniques gear reviews and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career 
to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Shout now, honey! 